Tonight we're reading from Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I would judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at Soul Revival, and it's a pleasure to open up the scriptures again with us tonight. So whether you're online or whether you're here in the factory at Kirawee, let's bow our heads and thank God for this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that as uh, Jesus uh, gave us this teaching, that he's um, given us an opportunity to make a decision about his identity as the king of the universe. Lord God, we thank you that the king has come amongst us and taught us and not only that, but saved us for an eternity with you. And if that wasn't enough, Lord, he's also given us the opportunity to partner with him as he continues to grow his kingdom one person at a time. He asks us to partner with him in that. And as we consider what we can do in partnering with Jesus tonight, Lord God, I pray you'd greatly encourage our hearts at the worthwhile life that we have to live. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it was a long time ago, but my first job was working, well, second job actually, but my second job was working for a Member of Parliament, uh, State Parliament, and the Member of Parliament's name was Mr Phil White, and he was the Member for Earlwood. And I got the job basically because I was a student at Sydney University in the Political Science Department. We used to call it the Government, Department of Government, I think it was called back in those days. Uh, back in the late 80s, I was 20 years old and uh, basically my head of department um, saw me walking down the corridor one day and said, oh, 
there's some politicians who are looking for speech writers. Are you interested? And I said, oh, do they pay? And she said, yeah, they do. I said, yeah, I'm interested. Awesome. Anyway, so I, at the time, didn't even own a suit, but I had to buy a suit to go to this interview because it was at Parliament House. And have you ever been to Macquarie Street, at Parliament House Macquarie Street? If you haven't, do yourself a favour. Really interesting building. Lots of really beautiful uh, architecture and interesting things in there. Anyway, so I rocked up to Parliament House and here was this very sophisticated looking guy with his suit on sitting behind the desk and I'm nervously walking in for my first job interview and I sit down and he said, you a student in Sydney University Government Department? I said, yes. He said, you've got the job. <laughs> I said, awesome. <laughs> when do I start? He said, meet me at my, uh, uh, my uh, office in Earlwood uh, first thing next Monday morning. Great, so I rocked up to Earlwood first thing Monday morning. Had no idea what being a speechwriter for a Member of Parliament was all about. But as it turned out, I was what was called an Assistant Electoral Secretary. I like that title, Assistant Electoral Secretary. That was cool. I was hoping I'd have a little desk with a little Assistant Electoral Secretary written on the front with Stuart Crawshaw, but I didn't get anything sophisticated like that. I just had a shared desk and just had to sit down at a shared desk. Anyway, uh, Phil said, look, I'll run you through what I want you to do day to day. First thing you're going to do is come in and read the paper for me. I said, really? He said, yeah, I want you to read the paper. I want you to look through the paper and I want you to see if they've said anything about me. That's part of what your job is. I said, what paper? He said, all of them. <laughs> I'm like, really? You want me to read the paper and you're going to pay me to do that, to look for your name? Yes. Cool. He then went on and gave me a few other tasks that weren't too serious, weren't too hard. And he did say to me that I have a speech coming up and I want you to write me a speech for that in a couple of weeks or whatever. So I was doing that. But anyway, day to day, first week, I rock up, get into the office. I didn't even have to buy the newspapers. There they were, all piled up on the desk. And I turned to the other guy I was working with, uh, who ended up becoming one of my best friends. Uh, his name is Demetrius. Dimitri was the Greek speech writer for Phil, because he lived in an electorate with lots of Greek-speaking people. So Demetrius wrote his Greek speeches. I wrote the English speeches, but we both read the paper. And I said to him, I've been told by Phil that we've got to read the paper. He says, not until we go and buy some, some uh, Greek sweets. I said, right. So we went next door to the shop and we got baklava and we got all these beautiful things. I'd, I'm from the Shire, Shire boy in the 80s. I'd never seen a baklava to poke a stick at. I'd never, I didn't even know what it was. I'm like, oh, I was like poking it around the plate. What's this? Got nuts in it, a bit of honey. I tasted it. It was like nectar of the gods. <laughs> the best thing I've ever tasted. Anyway, the funny thing about Dimitri was I was about to try and give him half the money because back in the 80s, I don't know if you remember this, but my memory is that back in the 80s, when you went out to dinner with someone, you split it right down the middle evenly. Everyone paid exactly the same amount, in, in my world anyway. I don't know if that was your world, if you were there. By the way, young people, the dinosaurs were walking the earth back in those days. But we used to split the... Yeah, it's just a joke. We split the bill down the middle. So here I am getting $5.25. I remember the actual amount because it was half the... He's, are you kidding me? I'm like, wow, this is a new world. He's buying me this baklava stuff. And then he bought me a coffee. It wasn't just a coffee. It was a Greek coffee. You know the stuff that has the mud at the bottom? The real good stuff? Pardon, mate? Yeah, spoon can stand up in it. So I get my Greek coffee. I get my baklava. I sit down with the paper. Dimitri and I look at each other and Dimitri goes, which paper do you want to read? I'm like, I might go for the telly. He says, I'll go to the Sydney Morning Herald. So there we are, reading the paper, looking for Phil's name. I found myself 
starting to look for Phil's name at the back of the newspaper. Started reading the sports section. <laughs> Flicking through, nah, nothing about Phil in the, the article about the Sharks. <laughs> nothing about Phil in the football section. Nah, nothing in the basketball. And then I went to the comics to see if there's anything about Phil in the comics section. You're getting where I'm going with this? I wasn't a very good employee. I'm eating baklava and drinking coffee. Anyway, this went on for a few days. Dimitri had his own version of that. He was doing that too. Phil comes in one day and, uh, you know, he usually came in at around 9.30, something like that, walked past us, went into his office and closed the door and then, you know, things would progress through the day. But one day he comes past and he looks over at what I'm reading, probably about three or four days into my job. And he's like, Stuart. I said, yes, Phil. He said, uh, I don't think you'll find me in the sports section. I said, you never know, Phil. You never know. And you know what he did? He just laughed and went into his office. And I expected to kind of get in trouble or him to say, yeah, okay, enough of that. And the next day he came in, I found myself, I was still doing the same thing. I had my, we ate a lot of baklava. <laughs> Dimitri and I would get coffee and baklava every morning, read the paper, right? And it used to take two or three hours. It was fantastic. And Phil comes in late at 11, and I'm still reading a paper. Do you know what he did? He just laughed, walked into his office. And I started feeling a bit bad. I, start, I don't think he was trying to make me feel bad, but I thought, this guy's a legend. He knows I'm eating baklava and drinking coffee. And I went into the room and I said, Phil, I, I, I just want to say, I think I'm spending a bit too much time reading the newspaper. He said, yes, I know you are. He said, are you enjoying yourself? I said, yes. He said, good. That's what I want to hear. I want you to enjoy yourself. If you're going to work for me, we're going to have times where we're going to work really hard. We're going to work late nights. We're going to go through really stressful situations. Sometimes constituents are going to come in and they're going to get really angry. And you're going to have to stand there between me and that constituent and defend me, even though you might not even agree with what I've done. You're going to need to come into Parliament House whenever I ask you to come, because I need you to be there with me. If we go into the chamber, you have to go into the Parliament chamber with me and sit there, and I want you to read through my notes as I go to make sure I do it right. But we're going to have a lot of fun. And that's all he said. He said, you can go now. And I went back out. And I went and sat down, and I thought to myself, I think this is the best boss I've ever had. He was my first boss. <laughs> but he was actually the best boss I'd ever had. Now, I'm not saying that I did the right thing by reading the newspaper. I didn't. I shouldn't have been reading the newspaper so much. I got a little bit carried away. But, you know, after that little interaction in the office, there was something changed in me. I got a new perspective. I felt like this was more than just a job. It was more than just making a bit of money so I could get through university, which is why I was doing the job. I realised I'd joined a little family. Demetrius was going out with a lovely girlfriend, Tina, and Demetrius and Tina and me and Lou became really good friends. Phil White and I and Demetrius became really good friends. And as we worked with him, we started to really believe in what he stood for. And we realised that working for him was not just getting money and going home at the end of the week with our pay. We were helping him to achieve some really good things. Now, I could spend hours telling you the things that he achieved. But do you know what? The reason you don't drive over the top of Woolai Creek bush land in your car is because of Phil White. 
because he got the government to put the road underground so he could save the last vestige of natural bushland in the inner city. One last thing, there's a really innocuous bridge on King George's Road that connects one side of the road to a school. You come up to a very busy intersection, I can't remember the names of the roads, it might even be Forest Road and King's, King's George's Road. There's an innocuous footbridge. Do you know a little girl had been hit by a car the year before Phil took office? And it took him the whole of his term as a member to get that built. And no one knew that he was the one who got it built. But one day, I was standing on the side of the road with Demetrius and Phil looking at that bridge. And I looked over at Phil and he started to cry. And he said, there's not going to be another little girl that's ever going to get hit by a car walking to school across this road ever again. And as far as I know, that's, that's actually the case. So something changed in my heart when I was working for Phil. But he was so super gracious that he didn't like rouse on me and tell me that I had to lift my game or what are you doing wasting my time and wasting my money. He knew that if he um, and I developed a relationship that I would realise over time that I wanted to work hard for him. You see what I'm saying? That I'd want to work hard for him, not feel like I had to or I was paid to. And the reason I tell that story today is that if a human being can actually have that impact on a small little group of staff, how much more does the king of the universe have the capacity to change our hearts, to help us to get excited about something that is bigger than ourselves and to actually enjoy it? I'm not saying everything I did at Phil's office was enjoyable. I had to get some signs off the road. You know those Corflu signs that you see on the side of the road? I'd put them out in the morning and I had to go and get them in the afternoon. And some boys from one of the schools in Hurstville had weed on all the signs on the way down the road. And I rang my boss and I said, Phil, I'm going to have to chuck these signs out. They've all got wee on them. He said, Stuart, we can't afford any new signs. You have to clean them. That wasn't a great job. I was door knocking the next week in in the campaign and I knocked on the door and the lady said, what party are you with? And I told her, and she called a dog. And I'm running down the, the footpath as this dog's chase, this big Alsatian comes running around the corner and Phil was in the, in the street yelling out, Stu, run, Stu, run! <laughs> that wasn't enjoyable. The dog got my, the bottom of my pants and I was going like this and it ripped my pants and I got over the fence. That wasn't great. But boy, we had a laugh. Phil actually lost his seat. We lost. But on the night that we lost, we all sat around and I said, Phil, do you remember when I used to just come and read the paper and I was taking a bit of advantage of you? And he goes, yeah, I do. And I said, thanks, mate. And he goes, that's okay. Because he changed the way I see working for people. He was a good boss. If Phil was a good boss, Jesus is a better boss. He is a boss because he's a king. He has authority And the problem, though, is that some people who are called to be serving in his service are not faithful stewards of what he gives for them to do, just like I wasn't a faithful steward of Phil's time when I wasn't doing all of the work I could have been doing, spending too much time reading the paper. What we've got here in Luke 19, 11, 17 is we have a passage that reminds us to be faithful servants as we wait for the kingdom of God to come because the kingdom of God is delayed. It doesn't happen straight away. It might not even come in our lifetime. But Jesus may actually come back in our lifetime, but there's a good chance he might not either. 
So this parable warns us that if we decide to follow Jesus, he is going to give us gifts so that we can partner with him. And if we don't actually partner with him, there'll be consequences with the decision either way. Now, as we were reading the parable, if you've been travelling with Soul Revival for a little while, you might be, have been sitting there thinking, actually, didn't we do a parable that was a bit similar to that a couple of months ago? We did. Um, we recently taught this parable from Matthew 25, 14, not from Luke 19. And in Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of the three bags. And we had a bit of fun with that, talking about how many bags different Christians have. We did. So this is a similar parable. Uh, in Matthew 25, there's a bit slightly different language. So why are we actually going to do it again from Luke when we've already looked at it in Matthew? Well, it's good to be reminded again that whoever we are, whatever gifts we have, we are all valuable in the kingdom. Even if you're just a little electoral secretary sitting in an office, you can actually enjoy serving in the bigger picture, like I used to. This parable also focuses us more on how beautiful and how powerful the motivation of the kingdom is in our lives. Now, just a little comment before we move on. You might have noticed already that the 10 minus are different language for the, the money that the boss gives out from the last passage, which was the three talents or the bags. What's going on there? Well, basically, in these two parables... Jesus is telling a story that has the same theme but he's using different weights of currency in the story. Uh, in the first one uh, that we're looking at tonight, the 10 miners, a miner is about what in their time was about 60 shekels. It was just a small coin. It wasn't worth heaps of money uh, but it wasn't uh, insignificant either. On the other hand, a talent was about 60 miners so hence, in the previous sermon when we talked about a talent, we're talking about bags of money. So in the Luke passage, Jesus tells us about this master who gives the servants some money. In the first one, he gives them stacks of money, big bags of money. In the second one, it's just a coin. Does that make sense? Now, that has caused some people over the years to go, oh, why, why does that happen? Why is there differences in the two parables? Why didn't Luke and Matthew both use talents? If Jesus told the story, are they playing with the truth a little bit? Like, you know, would Jesus have really told that parable twice or, or what's going on there? Well, I want to encourage us tonight that one of the reasons also that we're looking at this passage tonight is to say that when you come across differences like that in the scriptures, there are always good reasons for it, even if we don't know what they are. You can trust the Bible. It's something that we are saying implicitly every week. But every now and again at Sorrow Revival, we like to just pause and say, you can trust the Bible. It's the word of God. So you don't have to worry that there's somehow an inconsistency between Luke and Matthew when they tell the stories here. Now, maybe, maybe Matthew and Luke are emphasising different things and they're both telling the story. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're both telling it from their personal point of view. But what I think is happening here, which I'd like to share tonight, is I think what happens in the parables is Jesus is telling these parables so often and in so many places that he sometimes directs the parables for a particular audience. So in this parable, for example, he's actually wanting to emphasise in verse 11, if you have a look down there at verse 11, that this is about faithfulness in the context of waiting for the kingdom that's not going to come straight away. 
So that's a particular emphasis. So Jesus has this story of the treasure that a master gives out and he's, in this context, got a slightly different angle that he wanted, wants to have a look at. So if we're going to understand this passage, there are actually three parts to it. Verse 11 is, we're waiting for the kingdom, the context of faithfulness. The second thing we find in this passage is that there are two faithful stewards of the money and that's in Luke 19, 12 to 27. But thirdly, what we're also going to see in this passage, that there are enemies of the nobleman. Again, this passage emphasises that a bit more than the last one does too, and that's in Luke 19, 14 and 27. So let's just briefly have a look at those three things and let's see what we can glean as an application for us for our lives. Let's have a look at uh, Luke uh, 19, 11. Jesus spoke about this parable because he was near Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the capital city, and when he's coming towards the capital city, people think the Messiah might be the one who's actually going to go into the capital of Jerusalem and throw out the Romans. So there is a group of people, even within his cohort, even in his discipleship group, that are wondering if the reason we're going to Jerusalem now is so that immediately we're going to go into Jerusalem, we're going to kick out the Romans, we're going to kick out the corrupt Jewish officials, and we're going to rule. Jesus is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Well, Jesus is telling this parable to tell them to calm the farm, basically. Calm the farm. Have you heard that phrase before? Very good Australian phrase. Let's have a look at Jesus saying, calm the farm. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. I understand how they felt. Don't you sometimes just want Jesus to fix everything up? Whether it be in your life or in your, in your society, in your family, in the world, it's like, oh my goodness, people are at war with each other, people are arguing with each other on TV all night, there are all these people hurting other people. Jesus, when are you coming to finish this off so that we can actually stop this horrible evil? But we need in those frustrations not to be misled by false expectations of the kingdom of God. Instead, we should actually be patient. That's what Jesus is saying to us tonight, to be patient. Now, funnily enough, not that we've probably got time to look at this in much detail, but I want to mention tonight that funnily enough, even though Jesus said, don't be thinking the kingdom of God is going to come at once, when we actually see Paul writing to the young church in Thessalonica years later, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we read that, the Apostle Paul has to remind them of Luke 19 because they hadn't listened to Jesus, because they thought the kingdom was coming any minute. Let me read to you from 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened and help the weak. Be patient with everyone. While specific phrase... Uh, so basically there, the specific phrase of I urge you, brothers and sisters, who are idle... He goes on and then says that I want you to be working and be gainfully employed. Now, what had happened, according to the commentaries, is um, that the people of Thessalonica thought the kingdom of heaven was going to come tomorrow, so they just sat back and went, oh, we're not going to work anymore because Jesus will come back any minute. So we're just going to not worry about working anymore. And if you think that's crazy, I actually had a friend whose mum and dad uh, went to a, a certain church back in the 1980s and that church taught them that um, Jesus was going to come back by the end of the 80s and so people were selling their houses and giving all the money to the church so that the church could tell as many people before the end of the 1980s that Jesus was coming back. 
So it's not just a, a theoretical thing. People do get tricked by this kind of stuff. The Thessalonians were, and Jesus is warning us too to be careful of that. But can I just give you a flip side of that? The other side of it is to never expect that he's going to come back. So the two dangers for the Christian are either we live idly thinking Jesus will come back any minute or we actually get tricked into thinking, well, he didn't come yesterday, he didn't come last year, he didn't come last decade, maybe he's not coming back for a long time. And we have looked at parables of Jesus over the last couple of weeks to warn us to be remembering that Jesus might come any time, but here we're being encouraged to be patient. And can I say that's another reason to trust the Bible. The Bible has so many thoroughly good things to say to us wherever we're at in our lives. It's a good, worthwhile thing to spend time in the Word of God because he, spe he spends time uh, talking to you and helping you to be a good steward. So let's look at the good steward then. In, uh, the second point I've got is in Luke 19, 12 to 27. I'm going to paraphrase it. The nobleman goes to a distant country to be appointed king and he gives 10 of his servants 10 minus to put to work until he returns. Two of the servants invest the minus and earn profit while one of the servants hides his miner and earns nothing. The nobleman returns, the two faithful servants are rewarded with greater responsibility, but he punishes the unfaithful servant. Well, let's have a look at what he says to the faithful servants first in Luke 19, 16 to 19. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, good, and faithful, uh, good servant, rather, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in small things, small matters, take charge of ten cities. Wow, big deal. Ten cities? How did this guy have so much power? Well, just early in the passage, we read that he'd gone away because he was going to be appointed as a king. So he was a nobleman who was becoming a king. So presumably, now that he's become king, he owns all the cities. So if he owns all the cities, he's looking for good servants that he can trust to put in charge of the bigger cities. The second came to him and he said, Sir, the miner I had has earned five more. His master said, You take charge of five cities. Now in the last sermon I preached on this passage, I was saying it doesn't matter if you've been given a little bit of talent as a Christian, a few gifts, or a lot of gifts. It doesn't matter if you're Billy Graham or if you're just a garden variety Christian like I am. We all have gifts that we can invest in the kingdom of heaven. And I wasn't a member of parliament when I worked for Phil White. I was an assistant electoral secretary. So I had five minus. But my problem was I wasn't actually investing what I'd been given. I was taking advantage of what I'd been given. And I was spending it on myself. I was supposed to read the newspaper to look for my boss's name, not to look up how the sharks went on the weekend. Do you see what I'm saying? So these two good servants is what I grew into. Now I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but the encouragement here is that I think that we all can actually fall into the bad servant category as Christians. <laughs> That's a little theory I've got. However, when Jesus graciously draws us to himself, the Holy Spirit is in us sanctifying us to become more like Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is more interested in your godliness and your stewardship of the resources God's give you than even you are. So the wonderful thing is we've got a beautiful boss in the Lord Jesus who is helping us to get excited about our job. But what's happening here is there are two servants who've invested 
what the boss had given them and then he puts them in charge of bigger things. Can I make a little comment? I'd love you to go away and have a think about this. There's a man called Francis Schaeffer who wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And Adam and I were on, Adam Darvell and I were only talking about this yesterday. But Schaeffer says an interesting thing in that book. He says he, his personal theory is he doesn't think a Christian should seek higher office. He doesn't think that a Christian should try and be higher up. His theory was you should be waiting for someone to tell you it's time for you to go higher up. Interesting theory, isn't it? Because everywhere else in our world, career, for example, it's like, okay, I'm going to take this job or do this thing because it's good for my career. Well, Schaefer says, no, no, wait for the master to tell you when it's time. Because if you're faithful in small things, he will give you big things to do. So rather than trying to climb the ladder of life and become more successful than the other people, and there's lots of versions of it, there's like a better car than everyone else, better clothes, cooler, you know, cooler person, uh, more money, you know, all those, you know what I'm talking about. I don't have to really unpack that, do I? We do that, naturally. But Schaefer says, if you take Jesus' teaching in somewhere like Luke 19, you wait to be called on to do something bigger. And what do you do in the process? The way to be a faithful steward is to not try and go up the corporate ladder in this life, but actually do what you've been given to do well. If you've been asked to read the newspaper read the newspaper properly and do it with enthusiasm. Underline where you see things that your boss needs and then put those papers aside as quick as you can so you can go on to the next job. Because I tell you what, when you do do those small things faithfully, your boss will say, you've been faithful in those small things. I have more for you to do. And that's what Jesus is saying he's actually doing with us. So what's true for our earthly masters is actually true for our heavenly father. Do you want to achieve big things for the kingdom of heaven? Well, my question to you tonight and to me is what am I and what are you doing for the kingdom of heaven with what God's got you now? Because if you're faithful in the small things, he'll give you bigger things to do. Because I changed my attitude at work, I got asked to set up a young person's branch of the party that I was part of. And I was pretty worried about that. And I was walking down Parliament House one night thinking about what it's going to do to how, how could I possibly do that? It seemed a bit beyond me and I walked past Dawn Fraser. Has anyone here heard of Dawn Fraser? She's, she was an MLC at uh, New South Wales Parliament while I was there and she saw me walk past and she said, Stewie, do you mind grabbing me a coffee? And I said, yeah, Dawn, I'll go and do that. I went and got her a coffee. I used to buy a coffee every now and again. She was sitting there because she didn't have any staff. So I sat with her. I said, is there anything you want me to do for you today, Dawn? She said, no. I said, cool. We didn't have a lot in common. She was like, I don't know, probably 70 nearly, and I'm like 20. She's like one of the heroes of Australia. She like won more Olympic gold medals than me. <laughs> I, I, I just felt like I just like sitting in her presence. But that day I, I got the guts up and I said, Dawn, I'm a bit nervous about, about trying to get this, this branch going for my boss. And she said, do you know what you do, Stu? I said, what? She said, you just stand up on that block and then you look ahead of yourself where you're going to go and then when you hear the starter gun, you jump. That's all you have to do. I said, not really, because you'd sink to the bottom of the pool if that's all you did. <laughs> she said, granted. <laughs> you get in the water and you swim like hell. 
And that's what I used to do. I used to get terribly nervous, Stu. I didn't think I could do it. And I used to think to myself, what am I doing here representing my country at the Olympics? She said, I'd get up on that podium and I'd swim like hell. And I think Jesus is saying to us, get up on the podium and when you hear my gun go off, swim toward heaven. <laughs> swim toward heaven. The kingdom draws us, doesn't it? Where's our, where's our destination? Is it corporate success or is it financial success or is it sporting success? Is it, I've got the most friends, I've got lots of friends, I feel safe. It's none of those things. Yet the last one, the enemies of the nobleman, just to finish in uh, my third point, the enemies of the nobleman are described in Luke 19, 14 and verse 27. Let's have a look at 14. As soon as the king got sent off to the capital, sorry, the nobleman got sent off to the capital to become king, some of his subjects hated him and sent a delegation to the cities to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now let me pause on that for a moment. Do you know or have you heard of people who do not want Jesus to be king? Have you heard of that? It's actually quite common, isn't it? Interesting. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. What did the subjects do when they saw other subjects trying to stop the king from being the king? What did the subjects do in this story? someone answer me not rhetorical what did the subjects do in this passage when they heard of the enemies of the king trying to stop the coronation they invested what the king had given them to do you know sometimes it's okay to look at culture and go glad that's not my job it's above my pay grade I've just got to read the paper set the signs up knock on doors and run away from dogs that's my job and I'm going to do that the best I can and if I'm really good at that you never know one of us might be invited to do more than that but in the meantime I think what happens is when the enemies of Christ see the followers of Christ serving Christ with joy and with compassion and are loving their lives I think that speaks oceans for the message that we believe well, the nobleman returns. Let's have a look at what he says in 2021. It's hectic. Then another servant came and said, Sir, this is when the third person comes to make an account of what he's done with the miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man and you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. Now, this is really quite important. Verse 22, the master replied, who's now the king, by the way, he said, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. Now, just a pause on that. Isn't that interesting? I will judge you on your own words. You are judging me. I'll judge you by the same measure. Now, there's a principle in there that we need to be really careful of as Christians. You will be judged according to how you judge. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever looked at a minister like me get up the front and go, wow, that wasn't a great sermon? Went on a bit long, a few stories about some strange thing about Dawn Fraser. I don't know what he was talking about tonight. Well, if you judge harshly, then maybe take a look at your own life. How's your newspaper reading going? Because 
if you want to be judged by the same measure that you judge me, God will judge you like that. But the really fascinating thing, and Jesus says this elsewhere, if you judge and have grace towards others, then you will have grace offered to you. If you forgive others, you will be forgiven. Isn't that a recipe for a beautiful community? Where we don't sit in judgment looking down at other people saying whether they're good or not. But we actually ask ourselves, how can I invest what God's given me to make this ministry thrive? It's beautiful. But the really interesting thing is that Jesus is saying that the master does not let this evil, lazy steward off the hook. If you think I, I am so hard, why didn't you just put the money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected interest? Actually, you were basically saying, you're lying, actually. You couldn't even be bothered putting the money in the bank. You got the minus, you went home, you took it out of your pocket, you got a hanky, you put it in the hanky, you put it in the drawer, closed the drawer, king's never coming back. I think that's what's going on. I think the guy's going, I don't think the king's coming back. Because everyone's trying to write to the capital and tell them not to have the king. And I reckon there's a lot of people in our day and age who don't think Jesus is coming back. And so they speak and act with impunity as if there's not a judgment day. And it's a terrifying consequence not to be aware of how dangerous that is. Verse 24, then he said to those standing by, take this miner away from him and give it to the other one who already has ten miners. Because Jesus replied, I tell you that anyone who has will be given more, but anyone who has nothing will have it taken away from them. Now, the meaning of this is that in the final judgment, the way Jesus will judge us is actually, are we going to recognise him as the king? Are we going to put our faith in what he has done for us so that we can go and be a part of the kingdom? And if you need a bit more evidence than just this passage tonight, remember Mark chapter 1, verse 14, where Jesus introduced his ministry by saying, I am the king, I've come to bring in the kingdom, repent and believe the good news. See, the reason we work hard as Christians is not to get into heaven or to earn the master's favour, it's because we love him. And that's why I told that story at the beginning about my boss, Phil White. When grace is shown me in that work context, I was surprised and didn't feel worthy of his grace. He just laughed because I didn't read the newspaper when he should have sacked me because I was wasting his time and I was a bum. Sorry for the language, I didn't expect that word to come out of my mouth. I was though. I was lazy. I think what's going on here is that when we fall in love with Jesus, we want his kingdom to grow. And the motivation we have for Christians to come to church each week even, just even being here is investing in the kingdom. The reason we get our tired selves off the lounge and come to church is so that we might be able to give back to the one who has loved us so much with just whatever we have to give back. The enemies of Christ will not prevail. Luke 19, 27. Those enemies of mine who did not do what... Uh, want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That sounds super harsh, doesn't it? But literally, that's the politics of the day. The politics of our day is elect them out of office or, or sack them or whatever that might be. Or maybe someone does something really bad, you put them in jail. But at this time, if you oppose the king, it was your very life that was at stake. And I think the heaviness of this is that our life in eternity is at stake tonight. If we accept Jesus as king, that he died on the cross in our place for our sins out of love and trust in that death and sacrifice and simply be humble and say, I'm sorry for my sin, 
please forgive me in the name of Jesus, that his death on the cross might pay for my sin. That's all we need to do to know that we have an eternity in heaven. God entrusts us with gifts and resources and he asks us to be wise and faithful stewards and he rewards us when we are faithful. But in our daily lives, our gifts aren't meant to be hidden or wasted. We need to recognise and acknowledge that Jesus is going to give each of us unique talents. Isn't that beautiful? We all have a unique role to play in the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's washing signs that kids have weed on. Sometimes it's sitting down and talking with Dawn Fraser and just thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, I need to pinch myself, I'm talking to Dawn Fraser. There are moments like that in the kingdom. There are highs and lows. But the wonderful thing is that whether it be in our interactions with others, whether it be in our work, in our family, or at school, or wherever it is, in our hobbies, we need to make a positive impact in the small things if we want to have greater things to do. I'm going to just leave you with this one example. The biggest feedback I used to get from parents in the early 1990s when I started as a youth minister was the kids behave themselves better at church than they do at home. Time and time again I used to hear that. The parents would come to me and they'd watch the kids at church and they'd say, wow, it's like I'm watching a different person. But when they get home, oh my goodness, it's like they just go reverting back to some like different person. Now, the reason I say that is, particularly for the young crew, it takes effort to use your gifts in the small things. You might be longing for bigger things to do in your life, but it's actually the small things that matter. For adults, those of us that were alive in the 90s who were kids in the 90s, you know what I mean. And if, like me, you're a kid in the 70s or the 80s, I think that's the same back then too. We can put on a face when we come to church and we can be a different kind of person. But what really matters is how you live in the small details of life in your own home, in your school, in your workplace. I'm not saying we have to be perfect, but isn't it exciting to think that if we do follow God and honour him in the small things, he will notice those. And I actually think God cares more about the small things than he cares about the big things, actually. And in our daily lives in the small things, if he sees us being faithful, that's when he says, here's something more for you to do. By the way, that uh, branch that I tried to set up failed. <laughs> Didn't work. I got 17 friends, but someone heard we were going to start a branch and they started one the night before so that we didn't get our branch going. But it didn't really matter, did it? Because I look back on that and I know I did the right thing. I didn't trick anyone, I didn't lie, I didn't try and steal, I didn't try and manipulate the process to get ours set up first. I just went, oh, whatever. And looking back, who cares about a young branch of a political party 20, 30 years ago? No one, no one cares. But what people do care about is how you speak and how you treat them and how you live. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just pray for our young crew and our older crew that you would help us to be consistent as we serve you in the small things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.